All right, everybody, good morning. How are we doing? I hate to break up the party, but uh, got to keep this going or y'all going to say it went too long, right? Hey, my name is Frank. I'm one of the pastors. I'm glad you're here. Um, we're in this series. We've been looking at the feasts of the Lord, and there are seven feasts that uh, God ordained. They're his appointed times, and, and we've been looking at how each one of those feasts points to a moment or moments in Jesus's life. And so I encourage you, if you haven't watched the series or you haven't been able, we're in like week four, uh, go to the Frank Bible Truth YouTube channel, go to our website, go to the podcast and uh, catch up. I think it would be very, uh, uh, it's very helpful to see uh, how God just has everything like set up and in control. Now, one of the things I was gonna share with you guys today, and you may have heard me say this before, but I hate to have my picture taken. I absolutely hate to have my picture taken. I don't like it. I never have. I used to try to run away from school on picture day. Um, I never learned that smile. You know that smile that people get? I never learned that. I mean, I just could not do it. No matter how, you know, I mean, it's like all of a sudden they're sad, then they're instant perky and the picture gets taken and you know, I, I always thought my pictures, particularly in school, they just looked real goofy, right? And so I, I did not like having my picture taken. And I never, I'm not, I totally don't get somebody taking your picture that wanted to sell it to you. <laughs> I can't stand that. You go to Disney, they take a picture of you, violation of privacy number one, and then they want to sell it to you and they post it for everybody to look at and they're all standing there going, oh, look at that guy. Yeah, I can't stand that. My media picture at the hospital is 17 years old. Because I didn't want to sit for another one. I still don't want to sit for another one. I don't like it, never did, never will. But God has a sense of humor. My wife loves photography. In fact, she had a photography business for quite a while and she took pictures of her favorite subject, which was children and homeless people. And occasionally I ended up in those, but I never liked it. We can take that down, that's cool. Uh, but here's what's interesting. As much as I hate having my picture taken, I absolutely love looking at and critiquing other pictures. I will literally, like, particularly if that picture is taken in history, like it's on the wall at like a restaurant or something, I will literally sit there for hours studying every face, thinking about like, what were they doing right before the picture was taken? What were they doing afterwards? What world event was going on in the moment they stopped to have their picture taken? What, and I'll, I'll go on and on, I'll, I'll create stories. I bet that guy and that guy were arguing before the picture was taken. Look at their face, and, I, and I'll literally sit there and analyze these things forever. I go into this super analytic mode trying to figure out everything. I recently spent hours, I mean hours, at the... Uh, National Portrait Gallery at the Smithsonian <clears throat> several years ago, and they had a, an exhibit there at the time of Ulysses S. Grant and Robert E. Lee. There were 20 pictures. Talk about being in the right place at the right time. I'm a big Civil War family. Also, these were new pictures I hadn't seen before. Tammy didn't go. She missed it. Five straight hours of looking at 20 pictures. I don't know what the deal was. When we sit in restaurants, I literally look at the photos on the wall. And as long as I can, I just sit there and stare at them and wonder what was happening. And, and photos fascinate me. I remember the first time I heard of a selfie. People taking their own picture. I thought, why in the world would anybody do that? Who's going to do that? It's one thing to get stuck having your picture taken, but to do it to yourself, that's like totally nuts. And then I heard they actually post them so other people can see them. Not me, I've taken very few selfies in my life. I've never actually been by myself because I would never take a selfie. Tammy has to force me to do it. And every time she does, I have to do about six of them because I get this stupid look on my face and I can't make it look right. I get really uncomfortable. I don't know what I'm supposed to do. Am I supposed to smile? What am I supposed to do? I hate it when I'm forced to look at myself. 
I have to admit a few things though, that truthfully I'd rather avoid being exposed. When my picture's taken, I feel vulnerable. Pictures force me to look at what I've lost over. Like I'm like, who is that old guy in that picture? When did that happen? They say the camera doesn't lie, which is why we came up with Photoshop. But I know there's one selfie that never lies. There's one selfie that no matter how you take it, it'll never lie and it can never, ever be Photoshopped. It looks like this. And every time you hold up God's word and take a picture of yourself, it's the only true selfie you're ever going to get. It doesn't hide anything. Holding up and studying the Bible in your life allows you to begin to see yourself the way God sees you. Hebrews 4.12, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, of discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. No creature is hidden from his sight. All are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. When we study God's word, when we look at his holiness, when we look at his perfection, we know it's going to take far more than Photoshop to fix what's wrong with us. Look at the text. No creature is hidden from his sight. All are naked and exposed. God's word exposes not only how we look, but the thoughts and intentions of our heart. Can you imagine a camera that would capture not only you, but what you're really thinking? Sounds like fun, doesn't it? That's why it's so hard to preach the truth of this book. Because you can't preach the truth of this book and always give people warm and fuzzy feelings. This book was designed to force us to look at ourselves. It is the ultimate selfie. God wants us to open the book and see ourselves. Not so he can humiliate us, but so he can engage us to surrender and allow him to transform us. So it's no surprise that for many years of my life, I avoided the word of God too. I didn't like to see myself. I didn't want to admit the truth. I didn't want to see what God sees and that I had glossed over and what God knows is in my heart. For a significant portion of my life, I carried this book around to look spiritual. I occasionally open it, I'd try to change what it said. I used it to try to support what I wanted it to say. But then what it would say, I would rationalize away and then it ended up saying really nothing about me. I tried to fake out God. You ever done that? As if he can't see. One of my favorite questions God asked in the Bible, Adam, where are you? He knows where Adam is. He wanted Adam to look at where he was spiritually. That's what he wants us to look at. And we go around going, God, don't look there. Don't, don't, know, don't look here. Look at me. I'm over here. I'm serving. I'm in the children's ministry. God, no, don't look at that. I'm over here serving. Oh, wait, that one. No, don't just forget that, God. We're not going to look at that because, see, I'm tithing. And we spend our entire life as if we can think we can outsmart God. And sometimes we treat God like he's not even smart at all. Like we can play a shell game with our sins and hide them from him. Fortunately, God is patient with us. He knows that none of us really like to face and admit the truth. He knows that most of us don't like what's in our hearts at times. It takes a lot of faith in God's love and mercy to hold up this book and take a selfie. Allowing God to shine light and expose what he wants to expose, not what we want hidden. He knew we'd have to set aside time to do this, to allow him to show us what we've not been able to see. That is why he ordained the Feast of Unleavened Bread. 
We need a time to stop. We need a time to look at ourselves. We need a time to agree with God about who we are. And we're in a series called The Appointed Times, looking at the seven feasts, seven appointed times when God said in Leviticus 23 that seven days that his people should keep holy, seven feasts. Four in the fall, three in the spring. And throughout the feast, each foreshadows and foretells a key moment in Jesus' life. Spring feasts happen in Jesus' first coming to earth, Passover, unleavened bread, first fruits, and weeks. And the feast will happen at his second coming, trumpets, day of atonement, and tabernacles. Signs of Jesus' return. Literal fulfillment of the fall feast. Signs in heaven, signs on earth, signs among people, signs in the heart of people. God put signs everywhere so we wouldn't miss it, so we would know what's to come. He gave signs to the prophets that are recorded in Scripture. He gave signs in Scripture by Jesus himself. And then he gave his followers the Holy Spirit to reveal and teach all things, including being aware of the times and being aware of the signs. Last two weeks, we've been looking at Passover. We learned that the Passover has been fulfilled prophetically in the life of Jesus. He was the lamb that was slain. He was the afikoman, the, the middle part of the matzah, the bread itself. He was presented, examined, crucified by the whole assembly, and he died just like Passover lambs die. But when we learn that there's a Passover moment to come, when God's final pass of death will come, and we have to make sure that our lives Everyone's lives are covered in the blood of Jesus. Passover is all about the crucifixion and death of Jesus. It's about innocent sacrifice for our sins. And we live in a time between the sacrifice of the lamb and the final pass of death over at end times. We're at a time spiritually where every person has to decide what to do with the blood of the lamb. Today we explore the second feast called Unleavened Bread. This feast starts the very next day after Passover. In fact, the two are often linked together in one celebration. Many Jewish people consider Passover both the day of Passover and the week following, which is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And it's my prayer that by following and studying these feasts, we'll begin to see God's plan for redemption in a very new way. We'll build our confidence about God's promises in the future and we'll understand what Jesus did and why he did it in a very new way. We'll go to a deeper place with God both as individuals and as a church. As we get into the fall feasts later, we'll have a better understanding of the things that are to come in our future. We'll see God's hand guiding the times throughout human history and we'll be compelled to reach out and tell those who don't know. Passover is linked with the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The two are often celebrated together eight days in the spring. In fact, the Bible often uses the term Passover and Feast of Unleavened Bread interchangeably. They were introduced by God before any other feasts were introduced. These two were the very first feasts introduced by God. When God told the Israelites that he would be passing over that night, he told them about the importance of these eight days. So by the time these feasts were recorded in Leviticus, they already knew and had already been observing Passover and unleavened bread. Let's look at what God says in Exodus. He has just told them he would be passing over on the 14th day of Nisan. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be for you a memorial day. And you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord at appointed time. Throughout your generations, as a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. Okay, so he's saying Passover, I want you to follow it. Every year, we're going to remember what, what happened, Passover. 
And then he says, seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you'll remove leaven out of your houses for if anyone eats what's leavened from the first day to the seventh day, that person will be cut off from Israel. On the first day you'll hold a holy assembly and on the seventh day a holy assembly. No work shall be done on those days, but what everyone needs to eat that alone may be prepared for you. And you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread for on this very day I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt. Therefore, you shall observe this day throughout generations as a statute forever. In the first month, from the 14th day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the 21st day of the month at evening. For seven days, no leaven is to be found in your house. If anyone eats what's leavened, that person will be cut off from the congregation of Israel. Whether he is a sojourner or a native of the land, you shall eat nothing leavened, and all your dwelling places you shall eat unleavened bread. Pretty clear. So those two feasts from the very beginning were ordained together. Now, this feast is also the first feast that is called a pilgrimage feast. Turns out, God said, of the seven feasts, three of them have to be celebrated at the temple in Jerusalem. Three times a year, you're going to stop what you're doing, and this day is so special, you're going to take you and your family to go back to Jerusalem. Now, you've got to remember, Jerusalem, for some people, like in Galilee, was a three- or four-day walk. Okay, the entire north part of the country would empty out. They all had to be in Jerusalem. Every Jewish male who could travel had to go to Jerusalem for the feast. In Scripture, all the time you'll read about they were in Jerusalem for the feast. And if you look close enough, you'll figure out which feast it was. Hmm. All Jewish men were required on these three feasts to present themselves to the temple. Three times a year they made a pilgrimage. Twice in spring, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Then 50 days later, they would come back for Pentecost, the Feast of Weeks. And then once in the fall, they traveled to the temple in Jerusalem for the Feast of Trumpets. We'll be covering each of those as we go. All Jewish men celebrated these three feasts in the temple in Jerusalem. We see Jesus observing these pilgrimage feasts as well. Remember, Jesus obeyed and followed Jewish law. At age 12, he traveled with his family for the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of Passover. Did you ever notice that before? Story of Jesus in the temple, they were there for Passover and for unleavened bread. And he was 12 years old, they went up according to the custom. And when the feast was ended, the last day of unleavened bread, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem and his parents didn't know it. Three days, he's hidden in the temple, teaching the scholars, perhaps foreshadowing what was to come. Leviticus 23, 5 through 8. In the first month, on the 14th day of the month at twilight, is the Lord's Passover. On the 15th day of the same month, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. For seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you'll have a convocation. You should not do any ordinary work. That is why it's called a high holy day. It's treated as a Sabbath day, even though it doesn't fall on the Sabbath. So there are certain days of the year where God said, look, I'm sticking a Sabbath right here every year. You're to do nothing except spend time with me and do what I tell you to do. So the day after Passover is a day of no work, none. Okay? Now the other thing to remember is that Jerusalem in Jewish days, still, the day starts at sunset and ends at sunrise. Okay? So they have a different way of keeping track of days. This is why they rushed to get Jesus down from the cross and into the tomb. He died as the Passover lamb, likely around 3 p.m. The sun sets around 6 p.m. And the holy day started that next day. They were allowed to do no work. That's why Joseph of Arimathema, Arimathema, this man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. And he took it down and he wrapped it in a linen shroud. And we talked about how that's probably the kittle. And laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever been laid. 
It was the day of preparation and the Sabbath was beginning. Okay, the day of preparation. The next day is the holy day that begins the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid and they returned and prepared spices. On the Sabbath day, they rested according to the commandment. Notice it doesn't say they rested according to the tradition. It's a commandment. No work. Sun went down. Stop it. Whatever you're doing, stop it. I remember we were on a trip to Jerusalem uh, and uh, we had to confirm our flights out. And I waited until sunset the day before and I was on the computer and all of a sudden the internet goes down. No work. Can't do that. The day of preparation begins the day before Sabbath. They rush to prepare Jesus' burial before sunset. The ladies saw how his body was placed in a tomb, but their preparation of spices and ointments were interrupted by the Sabbath. So on what we call Easter, the Jews call the Feast of First Fruits. They returned with those spices to find an empty tomb. That feast we're going to unpack next week. So Jesus died as the Passover lamb, being placed in the tomb during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Do you remember last week we talked about how unleavened bread represented Jesus? How they had the the, the three matzah, the three breads, and they took the middle one out and they hid it in linen and they hid it out in the house somewhere and the Passover couldn't continue till they found it and, and that we know that as believers that that represents Christ and the fact that he's put away. Uh, and the thing that's important is remember that leaven is all about sin. Unleavened means no sin. And so I want you to understand that we celebrate Easter But what we miss is that God ordained that Easter is part of a greater celebration, a week-long celebration of the Messiah, the bread of life, Jesus. And we miss that sometimes, and we're going to talk about that a little bit. Leviticus 23.5, on the first day you shall have a holy convocation. Okay, so everybody comes together. You shall not do any ordinary work, but you shall present a food offering to the Lord for seven days. On the seventh day is another convocation meeting. You shall not do any other work. So you have holy day, five days, holy day. Okay, no work, no work, work in the middle, no leaven, right? For the whole thing, does that make sense? Seven days of the feast, five days of food offering sandwiched between two holy days unintended, sandwiched between two holy days. During the seven-day feast, leaven is strictly forbidden under all circumstances. At least six passages in Scripture emphasize the importance of avoiding leaven during this feast. It's not a minor thing to God, and the punishment was absolutely severe. For seven days, no leaven is to be found in your house. If anyone eats what is leavened, that person will be cut off from the congregation of Israel, excommunicated. We say, well, that's not so bad. I'll just go find another congregation. That's not how it worked. They had one synagogue. If you weren't a standing member person in the synagogue, you couldn't get food, you couldn't eat, you couldn't work, you were were chastised. And it says, whether he is a sojourner or native of the land, not being Jewish doesn't work either. It says, when you, when you come in this, this week, no one, I don't want any leaven anywhere in this place. You see, it's not just enough to avoid leaven. You have to do everything you can during those seven days to avoid any form of leaven. It can't be in your home. It can't be in your business. It can't be in your car. It has to be removed from every place and everything you eat. It is seven days, no leaven anywhere. Exodus 10 or 13, 7. Unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days. No, un, no leavened bread shall be seen with you. No leaven shall be seen with you in all your territory. You shall tell your son on that day, it is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. And it shall be to you a sign on your hand and a memorial between your eyes that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand, the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. 
You shall therefore keep this statute at its appointed time from year to year. Deuteronomy 16, you shall eat no unleavened bread, or no leavened bread with it. Seven days you shall eat it with unleavened bread, the bread of affliction. For you came out of the land of Egypt in haste, that all the days of your life you may remember the day when you came out of the land of Egypt. No leaven shall be seen with you in all your territory for seven days. Seems over the top, doesn't it? Doesn't it? I mean, leaven. Breadcrumb. God delivered the Israelites in a hurry. They couldn't cook bread. They took unleavened bread. Got it. Okay, what's the big deal? Thank you. We'll move on, right? Why all the warnings? Why did God make such a big deal out of this? God, why are you so serious about leaven? What's the big deal? Well, the big deal is what leaven represented. In Hebrew, leaven is known as hamats, which means sour. Leaven is usually yeast or baking powder. It ferments in what it's in. As leaven sours the dough, tiny gas bubbles begin to build up in the dough to rise. Just a, a bit of leaven will take the whole dough out. During these appointed times, any leaven, no matter how small they mount, no matter how hidden, no matter how discreet, you can't eat it, you can't touch it, you can't look at it. All leaven has to be discovered and purged. Failure to do so is a serious breach of God's law because God is serious about sin and we're not. Let me repeat that. God is serious about sin and we're not. Because in scripture, sin is pictured as leaven. Jesus said this, watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And they began discussing it among themselves, saying, we brought no bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, oh, you have little faith. Why are you discussing among yourself the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive? How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? Beware of the leaven of the Sadducees and the Pharisees. And then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. He's telling you, be careful of their false teaching. Luke 12, 1, he began to say to his disciples first, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be made known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark will be heard in the light, and whatever you've whispered in private rooms will be proclaimed on housetops. You see, sin, like leaven, begins to ferment. It begins to rise. It becomes eventually obvious over time. You think that it's not doing anything. You think it's not going to cause any problems. But your sin in your life, particularly if you ignore it, it's going to grow. And it's going to come to light and people are going to know. Paul told the Galatians, you were running well. What hindered you from obeying the truth? Paul's like, what happened to you? You were doing so well. You were following the truth. This persuasion that you're following is not from he who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump, Paul says. A little bit of false teaching. A little sin. A little bit. It's eventually going to ruin you. Ancient rabbis believed that leaven represented the evil impulse of the heart. That leaven is a perfect picture of sin. The smallest amount. That part that, oh, God doesn't care. Yes, he does. It permeates the dough. It contaminates it. It sours it. It ferments it. It swells many times its original size and it changes its weight. Sin begins to weigh heavy on you no matter how small it started out. That's what sin does. Even the smallest amount. We may think it's insignificant. It'll permeate us, contaminate us, and sour us. If you want to know God's attitude towards sin, even little sins that you've rationalized away, think about his approach to purging leaven from homes and lives of the Israelites. In fact, I believe that's what this appointed time, this feast is all about. 
During the feast of Passover and unleavened bread, sacrifices are to be made without any leaven. Each day, the priests are commanded to uh, make specific sacrifices at the temple. During the eight days of celebration, a total of 66 lambs, 14 bulls, seven rams, seven goats, seven and a half bushels of fine flour, over 25 gallons of olive oil, and at least one half gallon of wine were expended as offerings to the Lord. God requires a sacrifice to cover sin. There's never forgiveness without the shedding of blood throughout Scripture. If there's going to be forgiveness, there had to be shedding of blood. The Jews knew better than I think we do that sin is serious. And that God takes it very seriously. Our culture blows it off. Well, that's not a big deal, really. If you had to kill your dog every year because of your sin, you think you'd change your mind? If you had to see the impact of your sin and what it really does? You see, Jesus was the final sacrifice for sin He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That doesn't mean we ignore them. It means we need to pay even more attention to them because we know better than they knew the price that was paid. We don't sacrifice animals for our sins anymore because Jesus was the final sacrifice for the world. The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Our forgiveness comes only through the shedding of his blood and our faith in what he did. Part of the feast of unleavened bread is to remember the cost paid to remove sin from your life, to remove leaven from your life, and to do a self-examination, a selfie, and make sure that all the leaven in your life is gone. Jesus was pure, sinless, no leaven. And he was sacrificed. We talked about this last week. He's the Lamb of God. Pierced, striped, wrapped in linen. He's the bread of life. Hidden, buried in a tomb. He's the middle matzah, the afakoman we talked about. He says, this is my body. Afakoman, do this in remembrance of me. He said, this is my blood, cup of redemption. Do this in remembrance of me. And because he was sinless, because he was without leaven, something happened to him in the tomb that's never happened to anybody else in the tomb. Something else that we celebrate during this feast. You see, the Afakoman, Jesus Christ, was so pure so without sin, that even though he was killed and put in a tomb, there was nothing there to grow and his body did not decay. King David, hundreds of years before, predicted this in prophecy. He said, because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. When Jesus is in the tomb, he's so pure. There's no leaven, nothing decays. You see, the curse of sin, Adam and Eve, God said, look, to dust you shall return. All of us are destined to dust because of the curse of sin. Jesus wasn't under that curse. Pure, sinless sacrifice, the grave could not hold him. Death had no power over him. He was perfect, without leaven, sinless, without decay, just as King David had prophesied hundreds of years before it happened. Jesus was the perfect, unleavened sacrifice. And that's important for us to remember as we look at the feast, uh, the, uh, the feast and we begin to understand our role. You see, Paul told the Corinthians, remember the church gone wild. We're studying it on Wednesday nights. Paul told the Corinthians, I want you to take a selfie. Your boasting is not good. You do not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Cleanse out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. In other words, if you're in Christ, you you can be sinless. You can clear the sin out of your life. 
Not because you have the power to do it, because the Holy Spirit does it. And because of Jesus and because of that, that payment that's been made, you, you, you can have a new lump. For Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Price was paid. Let us therefore celebrate the festival. Not with old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. In other words, you can live a whole different life. You can become more and more holy. You can become more and more like Christ. The more that he is in you, the more that you surrender, the more he transforms you, the less leaven in your life. Paul is telling them that because they have faith, because they trusted in Jesus as their sacrificial lamb of God, Passover is past history. The blood of Jesus has already covered their lives. It's time to live like it. It's time to live in it. They're now living in the feast of unleavened bread. They're living in a time where they must examine themselves. They must diligently seek out any leaven, any sin, no matter how small, and purge it from their lives. We should be looking at the sin in our lives like it's a cancer cell. I've never seen anybody come to me with cancer and go, oh, God, yeah, well, that's okay. No, they're like, get it out, it's going to kill me. That's what sin does. I don't care how small it is. It's going to eventually destroy you because it grows. And you got to cover it up. So then you got to make up another lie. And then you got to act like this. And you come to church all pretty and everything. And you get down at the altar and you think everybody's going to see you. But God's looking at your heart because he takes a selfie of your mind and your heart and your spirit. When it comes to our sins, when it comes to selfies, we tend to glance and gloss over them. We Photoshop it in our minds. We start making excuses. Well, yeah, I may do that, but that's, that's, not, that's not hurting God. That's, that's nothing. It's nothing. I can stop anytime. It's nothing. But when it comes to the sins of other people, whew, we're all in. Particularly when it hurts those we love. Man, you want to point out somebody else's sin? We're good at that. When that picture's in front of us, we can analyze it like I look at things at the Smithsonian. We can't see ourselves, but we sure can see everybody else. I love it when people come up to me and go, boy, I'm really glad you preached that sermon because so-and-so needed to hear it. And I say the same thing every time. I needed to hear it. What are you talking about? Paul is shocked that the Corinthians, who were now believers in Jesus, were still involved in their old sins. It made no sense to him. Why did you surrender to the price paid for your sins so you can keep living in them? Jesus came to set you free. They cleaned it up a little bit. Their sins weren't as obvious. They didn't talk about it as much. But for many of them, there's leaven lying around everywhere and they're acting like they don't see it. Paul tells them, don't you know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? And then he commands them again, get rid of it. Stop it. Now imagine I made you some brownies. I know, it's hard. And this has been used so many times, but I'm going to use it again. I know it's a huge stretch that I could make brownies. I know, I know. Suppose I made the best brownies ever. And you reach one, you take it, you ask me the ingredients, you enjoy your brownie, and I start listing the ingredients. Well, it's, it's Dutch processed cocoa powder. It's got to be Dutch. Unsalted butter, eggs, pure vanilla, extract, flour, pecan, sugar, chocolate syrup, and I have a secret ingredient. Adds a little texture to it. Gives it a bit of a kick. Kind of a Texas flair. To your surprise, my brownies are actually very good. You eat several of them and you say, okay, what's the, what's the key ingredient? Well, my dog Rocco poops in the backyard every day. And I just put a little bit of that in there. It's just a teaspoon. It's not hurting anybody. You probably can't even notice. It's really nothing. It's not important at all, but it gives texture to it. Go ahead and enjoy. Have another one. You want to know how God sees your sin? Just think about my brownies. So 
See, we don't understand that a little leaven ruins the whole lump. Paul's telling the Corinthians, you should no more allow a little leaven in your life than you would allow poop in your brownies. I'm paraphrasing. It's not exactly what he said, but you get the idea. That's essentially what the Feast of Unleavened Bread is all about. Getting the poop out of your brownies. Seven holy days, two Sabbaths, seven days of selfies, setting aside appointed times with God to allow His Word to take a snapshot of your life. To allow God to show you His slideshow, His video of who you really are and what you're really doing and what you're really thinking and what you're really saying. It's a chance for us to stop and allow God to tell us and show us what He sees in our hearts. See, he wants us to be diligent about clearing things out. Not because he wants to punish us. The punishment's already been done. Jesus did that. It's so we can get them out so it doesn't grow and take over our lives. He wants us to clean out even the smallest of sin. Because he knows that even the smallest of sin, if left in you, will eventually destroy you. Why does God want you to confess your sins? Because he wants to set you free from them. He wants you to join him in a search and destroy mission to get rid of any sin in your life. The Jewish people took painstaking efforts to remove even the smallest amount of leaven anywhere in their country. God's approach to leaven was Strict and serious. All sin, big or small, has to be discovered, confessed, and purged. Not so he can punish you, so he can free you. It's not about judgment, it's about forgiveness, being set free. Because as long as you know that leaven is there, you know, what if people found out? What if it, had, what if it gets bigger? It's not hurting anybody, really. It's hurting you because you just spent time thinking about it. The Feast of Unleavened Bread is a reminder to each of us that we are to pursue holiness. To want everything, anything that possibly or does displease God, get it out of my life. So this feast, what does it mean for us? What can we learn from this festival that we can apply to our lives? I love that the Jewish people took sin so seriously. They spent an entire week every year examining, confessing, seeking forgiveness for their sins. I think a lot of us haven't spent 15 minutes doing that. Much less every day, much less seven days a year. Truly allowing God to examine ourselves. Truly looking for sin in our life like you'd look for cancer on a CAT scan. When's the last time you did that? Truly believing that if you miss it or ignore it, it will kill you. God created appointed times, special days and feasts to get us to stop doing what we're doing and commune with him, to allow him to change us. Passover and unleavened bread remind us that God delivered the Israelites from their bondage and he can deliver you from whatever's bonding and binding you as well. But he will not forgive and he will not clean what you refuse to acknowledge and confess. You have to agree with God about the sin in your life. John said this, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we've not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. I want to encourage you to make this week a new commitment to cleaning all the leaven, all the sin out of your life. Set aside time each day to allow God to show you what he sees in your life. I told you last week that women clean the house, but only the man could declare the house free of leaven because he was the spiritual leader. The only person who can declare you free of leaven is Jesus Christ himself. I want to invite you, I want to invite all of us collectively to spend the next week cleaning house. And at the end of that week, we're going to come back here. 
We're going to celebrate what God has done. We're going to come in with pure hearts that we know we've examined, we've confessed, we got rid of all sin, and we're going to end the Feast of Unleavened Bread by celebrating communion together. We want to make sure before we come back next week that God agrees that all leaven has been removed from our lives. David prayed the prayer that I'm going to ask you to pray every day this week. Test me, O Lord, and try me. Examine my heart and my mind. We're going to pray that prayer every day. We're going to allow God to reveal to us what we can't or don't want to see about ourselves. Like the Corinthians, we can miss the leaven in our midst. Maybe during this time, you need to go to another believer, somebody you really trust who loves you deeply and only wants the best for you and ask them, do you see anything I'm missing? See, it's so easy to see it in others and so easy to miss it in ourselves. Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind. You see, we lie to ourselves about our sins. But the Feast of Unleavened Bread is all about allowing God to search your heart and test your mind. Next seven days, all area of your life, walk through it with God. Allow him to set the agenda. Allow him to set the topic. Don't wall off any part of your life, anything you're doing. If he says it's a sin, it's a sin. You don't need to argue it, rationalize it, think about it. It's a sin. It needs to be purged like cancer. No matter how insignificant you think it is, no matter how much you think other people are doing it, ask the Holy Spirit to teach you all things. And as he reveals to you what he sees, I'm say it again, you don't need to debate it. You don't need to rationalize it. You don't need to deny it. God has spoken. You need to own it, confess it, and get rid of it. Purge every bit of it from your life. It starts with confession. It starts with shining lights in the areas of your life you don't want anybody to see. Then a week from today, when we're sure that we've removed the leaven from this church, we're going to present our hearts to God and, and begin to understand in a deeper way what the Feast of Unleavened Bread is really about. Just imagine, just imagine with me, dream a little bit, how different our lives would be. How different our church would be. How different our relationships would be and how much brighter we could shine for Jesus if we spent seven days Diligently removing all sin from our lives. Each of us individually and collectively would be transformed. Those watching us would see a difference in us. We remove the roots of sin that have been entangling us for years and then the fruit of God's Spirit can grow in us. We become people of greater love and joy and peace and patience and kindness the Feast of Unleavened Bread is the ultimate seven-day selfie. And if you will, it becomes an annual reminder to you, to all of us. You see, I don't want you just to spend this week doing this. I want you to make this an annual thing for you. I, I incorporate it into my Easter celebration. I think it's so cool. You know, we celebrate that Easter, that Jesus rose from the dead. We'll talk about first fruits next week. But for seven days, they celebrate the matzah. They celebrate unleavened bread. They celebrate holiness and pureness in Jesus. So I'm going to encourage you at Good Friday to begin the next seven days examining yourself every year, making sure that if any leaven has crept back in, that you purge it to allow God to gently but purposely remove all sin in your life. Now I need to tell you a couple things as we close. One, you'll all be excited. I made brownies for the thing today. It's in there. <laughs> I did. They're in there. You can eat them. No, they're, they're really, they are. They're in there. I made them myself. Tammy just couldn't believe it, but I made brownies, so that's part of it. Second thing, on Good Friday this year, we're going to celebrate a Seder here at church. Um, we have uh, procured, procured, that sounds so bad, the lambs. Um, we will uh, have a Seder service. Okay? Um, it won't be a 
typical, traditional, everything, it'll be a Jesus-focused celebration on Good Friday, okay? Now, here's the deal. We have to know how many people are coming. Okay, you can't, this is not one of those where you can say, oh, hey, I'm showing up. It's that, that tonight, oh, I'm in. No, you're not. We love you, but we have to know because we obviously need to plan, right? So uh, Natalie Howard and I are taking point on uh, this whole thing. So um, we need to get some uh, reservations in so we know how many. So um, we'll put a sheet out at the desk out front and let you start writing down how many are coming. Uh, I mean, I hate to do the we can't take you if you don't let us know, but let me just tell you, we can't take you if you don't let us know, okay? Does that sound like a plan? All right, let's pray. God, I thank you that you knew the importance of us seeing ourselves the way you see us. Because truthfully, God, we've been lied to by the world. Our sins have been forgiven, and yet we live like they haven't. Other sins we've excused away, and we've pretended that they're okay. But God, I want us to get right with you. I want us to examine our lives. I mean, really examine, really examine like you were looking for cancer, that if it gets missed, you're gonna die and get serious about removing it from your life. That's what the Feast of Unleavened Bread is about. We're to remember the pure, the holiness of Jesus. And when we hold him up to ourselves, we begin to see the true selfie. So God, give us the grace, the courage to look at ourselves not in order to put ourselves down or deflate us or to diminish us, but to just agree with you on what's there and work with you to get it out. It's that simple. God, it would be a shame to get to the end of our lives and realize that you paid the price for all of our sins so we could be set free, but we never confessed them so we never felt the freedom. So God, give us courage this week. Examine our hearts. Shut our minds down so that we don't argue with you about what you say is true. I pray, God, that during this week you would continue to transform us as a people, as a church. Most of all, that we become a brighter light for you. So, God, we love you. We thank you for the reminders. We thank you for the appointed times. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right.